Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast. For more information about Grace Harvest Church or to find out more about something you hear during the podcast, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you through this week's message. We're doing a little series right now. We're calling it Pursuit 2020. And today I want to talk with you about what it means to be marked by the presence of God. What it means to be marked by the presence of God. Have you ever been marked by God? Has God ever made Himself so real to you that your life has been on a different course ever since that happened? Has the presence of God been impressed upon your mind and heart to such an extent that you can see a change in your life since you experienced God? You know, a lot of things in life will put a mark on us. Some of those marks, as you know and I know, are more like scars. Some of them have paralyzed us and held us back from becoming the person God's designed us to be. Today, I want to speak with you about What marks we can receive in life, the things that happen to us, that mark us, that scar us, that shape us and form us. But I want to show you, and I'm hoping that you get before you leave here today, that the most important mark that can ever happen to your life is when you're marked by the presence of God. When God's presence marks your life, you can't help but pursue more and more of His presence. To be marked by His presence is our pursuit. We, we were talking about it and we really came to the conclusion that this year, 2020, if there's anything we can put before our church as a theme, it would be that we would be a people who would be marked by and experience the presence of God in ways we never have before. That we would get to know Him more, see Him more, and that our lives would be filled with His Spirit and our lives would be marked by being a spirit led and spirit-empowered people. So I want to just start out today, um, and this is a little bit funny, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of serious too, but I, I want to talk to you about the fact that we are marked by God if we're children of God. God himself marks us, seals us with his own stamp, and that's really important because a lot of people have bought into the fear that attaches itself to the mark of the beast. How many of you are into end times prophecy? You're into end times prophecy teaching and you, your whole life, you know, you've been told, you watch stuff that is always telling you, we got to watch out, the mark of the beast is coming, right? And we, we're told that it's going to be a computer chip or a little implant under our skin on our hand or maybe there's going to be a barcode put on our forehead or something like that's going to happen. And what I want to share with you today is there are actually two kinds of marks that you find in the book of Revelation. And everybody focuses on the one at the expense of the really important one. The first one is the mark of the beast. And people always want to talk about that one. Don't take the mark. They say with kind of a crazy look in their eyes. And it, it's real. I mean, it's in the Bible. Revelation 13, 16 through 18, look what it says. It says, also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. 
Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So we read that and we're like, ooh, 666, the number of a man, the beast, the mark. Watch out for that. Don't take it, whatever you do, don't take it. Don't get the computer chip. Don't get the implant. Watch out, that's the mark of the beast. But what I want to show you today is a biblical principle, and it's the principle that we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And when we have symbolic methods used in one place, we have to kind of track those through. And so I want you to also notice that there's another mark in Revelation. It's in Revelation chapter 7, verse 3, and it says this, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Revelation 7, 3 in the, and I can't remember what the BBB is, and my mind went blank on what it is, but it says, do no damage to the earth or the sea or the trees until we have put a mark on the servants of our God. We also see in the book of Ezekiel that God is bringing destruction to the nations. He's judging them, and in the midst of that destruction, he tells some angels to go out, and he says, go out among my people and mark them in their foreheads seal them in the foreheads that they might be protected from the destruction that's about to come upon the earth. So if we, and and here's the reality, none of us are concerned, and none of you that are sitting here today are concerned about God sending an angel or something to actually put a physical mark on your forehead or on your hand, and yet we're afraid of a physical mark or an implant, and we miss what the Scripture's teaching us. And so what the scripture is telling us, if you look at the mark of the beast, and this is where I'm coming from, and I, I, I believe my interpretive method is solid, but 666, six, six is the number of man, six, the number of man three times is man making himself out to be God, out to be the Trinity. The mark on the head is our thoughts, our imaginations, our authority. The head is always authority in the Bible and the place, the center of things, and the hand is our work. So what's it saying? It's saying that if you let the system of the age, the beast system, mark you in your thinking, in your authority, and in the way you approach life, and you let it mark your works, the works of your hands in your life, and you take that mark on, um, that leads to destruction. You worship a false god. But if you are a child of God, God marks you. God seals you and sets you apart so that nothing can damn you. Nothing can touch you. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit, we learn in Ephesians. So the Spirit of God seals us and sets us apart. He marks His people with His very presence. He marks our thinking. He marks us with His image and character. And if you have this mark, you don't need to worry about the mark of the beast. You're not going to be double marked. Amen? I just got a message that came up on my iPad, so I had to swipe it away real quick before I read it. But I don't want to talk about those marks. For some of you, I've got, the wheels are turning. You're like, I got to go read my Bible now. Good. That's what I want to happen. But I want to talk about some different marks. I want to talk about the marks we receive in life. And the most important mark, the mark of being marked by the Holy Spirit, So the first thing I I want to look at is the fact that we're marked, we're scarred, we're touched, we're impressed upon both good and bad throughout life. And I have a a little illustration to kind of show it to you. Um, First thing is, is, you know, we we many times, this is a dry, let me make sure that is, yeah it is, this is a dry erase marker, right? And so this is a marker, and sometimes our lives get marked, right? We, We get marked by God. And I'm not going to be an artist, if you're out there going, I wonder what he's going to draw. Nothing. 
Say, thank you, Jesus. We all have our gifts, right? But I'm just kind of marking up this board, and, and um, I'm just, yeah, yeah. Some of you are like, ooh, is that the pentagram? No, just relax, okay? So what's beautiful about a dry erase marker, and it's kind of like different things that happen in our own life. Sometimes we get marked with something, but it's really easy to remove. It does no lasting damage to us, right? And so God comes along, and He uses people. He loves us through someone, and it's just really easy to erase it. It's not as easy as I thought it would be. It's actually taking some elbow grease here. It's still there a little bit, isn't it? Sometimes that's the way it is. Most of it gets removed, but you got to get some good stuff to clean it off. But now this, do you know what this is? That's a mega sharpie permanent marker. And you know as well as I do that you should never use a permanent marker on a whiteboard, should you? But sometimes what happens to our life is we have this happen to us. Somebody out there right now is going, I can't believe he's doing that to church property. We paid for that. Just relax, just relax. I did it in the first service too. You notice it's not there. Right? But our life gets marked, right? And it gets marked by something that's more permanent. And it takes some detergents. It takes a a long-term work of God to really get at the thing inside of us. Um, you know, I have a, it's kind of fun, I have a stamp, a personal stamp. Don't worry, your baptism certificate didn't have my stamp, I actually signed it. But it has my name on it. Um, so, T. Douglas Sherman. A lot of you didn't know my first name is actually Timothy, right? And there's a mark. It's a mark of my identity. And the scripture says that God marks us with his identity. In fact, the scripture says in Isaiah that we're inscribed on the palms of his hands, Right, so he marks us. But then, you know, sometimes in life, you get a real mark. Clint and Karina, thank you for the branding iron. Can you imagine what it would be like to get marked like this? But some of us in this room, we've been marked. We've been branded by childhood trauma, by things that have happened to us as adults, something burned us really deeply and scarred us really deeply. And we, we don't know how to get rid of it. And it's done lasting damage to us. But what I want to tell you is even that, even that deep, deep trauma isn't enough to separate you from the love of God and the mark of God's presence can overcome it. Amen? So I want to look at some of those marks right now. The first mark I want to talk about is the mark of our childhood and our upbringing. All of us have been marked by the kind of home we were raised in. We, you know, you become a teenager and you start to come into a young adulthood and what are you saying all the time in your back of your mind? I'm never going to be like my mom and dad. I'm never going to do that. And it becomes kind of your mantra and you're trying to move away. You're establishing your independence as a, as a human being. Sometimes you live in a home where you want to be like your parents. But many young people, it's like, no, I'm me. I'm going to be me. I'm not going to be like you. I'm going to establish my... And what ends up happening? You hit about 30 and you're realizing, you realize, oh my gosh, I'm becoming my parents. Right? It's just like inescapable because the home you were raised in, the methods that your parents, family, teachers, friends, coach, the people in your life, used in your lives have marked you and contributed to who you are and you can't get away from it. It's inescapable. But it doesn't mean you can't be transformed by the love of God. The mark of his presence. Secondly, the mark of our relationships with people outside of our home. 
relationships with people who have had a profound impact on us. I have some names here. Mr. Bell, my fourth grade teacher. Mr. Bell loved kids. He loved us. He made learning exciting. He, I wanted to go to class every day. I couldn't wait to see Mr. Bell. And I won his first spelling bee. And he gave me a paperback um, dictionary, probably cost him all of two or three dollars. And on the inside cover, he wrote, congratulations to you, Doug, winner of Mr. Bell's first spelling bee. Do you know, I don't have anything from my childhood, but I still have that dictionary. My life was marked by him, powerfully marked by him. There was a, a PE coach I had named Mr. Young. Mr. Young, I mean, the guy was intense. I was in elementary school. He was intense. He was way ahead of his time. He was making us kids do things none of the other schools had to do. And yet, I learned something about myself under his leadership. I learned that when I thought I could only run this far or this fast or jump this high or do this well in basketball or track and field or whatever it was, Mr. Young could always make us go higher. He had that ability to draw something out of people. There's also a person that marked my life I call the molester. When I was about eight years old, a man on our block molested a bunch of little boys, and he molested me the worst. He lured us down to his house with a, with a, um, a little track, car track, electric car track, and we played there, and then he began to groom us, and he groomed a bunch of little boys and did horrible, horrible things to us. And that marked me. It marked my life in an incredibly painful, deep way. I mean, it did something to me that shaped me, and it's taken the miracle healing touch of God to heal that. And there are others, my parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins. The greatest mark I've received as an adult outside of Jesus Christ himself is my wife. My wife's love, my wife's forgiveness, my wife's patience, my wife's putting up with my stuff over and over again. I keep expecting her to say, I'm done, That's you. I'm filled up to here, it's over. And instead she's like, I forgive you. I'm like, wow, if that isn't Jesus, I don't know what is. How about the, the people that I've worked with, all the pastors on staff here? Pastor Larry Bryce, 12 years ago, my associate pastor who was here, died from cancer. I still say things that Larry said all the time because Larry marked my life. Pastor Raul, Pastor Drew, Pastor Noah, all, all of our leaders here, Candace, all these people have marked my life. Some of you sitting here today, you've had a profound impact on my life. I am who I am because of you. So if you don't like me, blame yourself. Just kidding. <laughs> joking, joking, joking. How about the marks of our failures and successes? In childhood and youth, we, we succeed at some things and we fail at things. And I remember having failures as a child that really marked me and I had to overcome them and successes. Um, they do something to our character and, and the makeup that marks who we are. How about the mark of besetting sins? Each of us probably at one point or another, um, including currently, right now, are battling with some kind of besetting sin. Maybe it's anger. Maybe your issue is anger. You just you have explosive anger, and you mark people's lives all the time, and you're marked by people. They know you by your anger. They'll even talk behind your back. Yeah, that person has a serious anger problem, and you need deliverance. You need healing. You got, God's got to get at that thing because you're going to keep wounding people, and there's going to be a long string of destroyed relationships behind you if you don't deal with that anger. Or maybe it's, you know... Pornography, sexual immorality. Maybe right now you're hooked. 
And it's got your mind, it's got your heart, it's got your affections, it's causing problems in your marriage, it's causing problems in your single life. And it's just after you all the time. I want to tell you, God wants to heal that. And there are people, there are, there are opportunities, there are small groups, there are things out there. There's accountability. There are brothers and sisters to walk with you because it's not just a man thing, ladies. I happen to know that for a fact. There are people out there to walk with you. And right now, as you hide in your darkness, as you hide in your shame, you empower it because it stays hidden. But when you bring it to the light of people that you can trust, it begins to have its power broken. It's the beginning of the end when you bring it into the light. And Jesus will meet you and help you overcome it. It might be a long battle, but he will give you victory. He will, because he is victory, and you're connected to him. And then, you know, there's all kinds of other things, right? There's greed, gossip. Some of you got a real problem with gossip. And you think it's a small sin, but in the Bible it's huge because it divides people. It breaks relationships. It causes horrible pain. It can divide a church. I've watched gossip go through this church and do damage to relationships. And I'm telling you, it's wicked. You probably need to hold your tongue. You probably need to quit talking trash about people. If you don't have the boldness and the courage and the humility to confront people face to face in love with graciousness, you should probably shut up and pray. Just saying, right? Gossip. Lying. Some people, they, they're just in that besetting sin of lying. Or How about this one? Workaholism. We applaud that one. And we won't admit that workaholism probably destroys as many families as alcoholism. But in this culture, if you work all the time and you leave your relationships behind and you ruin your family over it, we go, good for you, man. You're making the buck and you're doing it. You sold your soul to the company store. Woo! And then, you know, you never hear an old man or an old woman say, man, I wish I'd worked more. What do you hear? It's always regret. I wish I'd spent more time with my family. So be delivered. Let God deliver you, right? Substance abuse and addiction, we've seen the way that ravishes lives. Neglect of family, marriage, laziness, self-righteousness, and judgmentalism. Some people's main besetting sin is they think that they are better. They're holier. They got a corner on spirituality, and everybody else needs to get right or get left. What's wrong with you people? You need to repent. And that's the way they view life, and that's the way they approach life. And how many of you know that's in the Bible? Jesus went after self righteousness and judgmentalism vehemently with fire, zeal. Am I talking to anybody? I'm just, you can tell I'm trying to hit everybody, man. Nobody's gonna escape. We're gonna all walk out of here. Right? Lack of self-control. All these things, they, they mark our lives and they often handicap our movements forward. And I want, you to t- I want you to know that the presence of God is the mark that begins the liberation. How about the mark of words that are spoken over us? Words mark us. Many times you, you, know, you were, uh, as a child, uh, the recipient of cursed words. I don't mean curse words. I mean cursed words. Words, you're stupid. You're never going to amount to anything. Shut up. You're annoying, and and that stuff marks you. And later in life, as you're trying to move forward with God, you hear the voice, the track of your parent or somebody else in your life telling you, you're a loser, you're a bum, you're never going to be anything. And I want to tell you, God wants to heal you from that because he has a different thing to say to you. He calls you beloved. He calls you son. He calls you daughter. He says you're great in him. You're adopted. You're being raised up. You're more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. Amen. Right? There's the mark of trauma. When we experience trauma in life, it marks us and often handicaps our ability to function. 
Some of us have experienced horrible abuse, and you don't even know it. You're living life with PTSD from your childhood. You were beaten, you were neglected, you were yelled at, you were sexually abused. Maybe you went through horrible deaths and losses as a child, and you've been trying to just figure out how to live life, but that stuff trips you up, and it mocks you, and it speaks to you, and it keeps you from being able to come forth and be the person that God wants you to be. And I want you to know God loves you, and He cares about that, and He sees it, and He's not disappointed in you. He knows you struggle with it, and He wants to restore you. The presence of God heals that stuff. Am I talking to anybody? How about the mark, the most important mark of all, the mark of encounters with God's presence? The most impactful mark, excuse me, that you'll ever receive in life is that encounter that you have with God's presence. You know, throughout the Bible, we meet men and women who've been marked in a life-transforming way by the presence of God. They're changed, and they go on to become heroes of faith. However, they're just like us. Never buy the lie that the Bible is full of people who are almost other than us. You know, people that were above and beyond what we are and what we can become. That's a lie. The Bible is full of messed up, broken sinners, liars, cheats, murderers, adulterers. It's full of people just like you and me, baby. Right? Gossips. And what, what, what is the distinguishing mark of those people in the Bible? The encounter with the presence of God. And the over and over encounter with the presence of God. It forms and shapes them. They hear a voice. They, 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 they learn something from Scripture. They have an encounter with God. And He speaks His promises, His gospel to them. And they're changed. No matter what you've been through, God can mark you in a fresh way and redeem your past sin, your past trauma, all the pain you've been through. And that's my prayer. My prayer is beginning today and throughout this year, this would be a year when many of you will be marked by the presence of God in a way that you've never known. And you'll find yourself going, God met me in my deepest, darkest place, in my pit. The one who goes deeper than my pit met me. He was there. He loved me. He restored me. He renewed me. He revived me. Amen? See, because to be marked by the presence of God is to be marked By the face of God. I don't know if you know this, but the word presence in the Old Testament and the New Testament in Hebrew and Greek is the word face. And and so think about it. When you read many times in the Bible and they experience the presence of God, the presence of God came into the room. You know, we oftentimes, we equate that presence with just kind of goosebumps and we feel something and it's like, wow, I feel God here. I feel happy or I feel the holiness of God. But what's really happening is God is present in the, in, present in the room and he's unveiling his face. And what we're experiencing at that moment is the countenance of God. And sometimes when we have that sense of joy and being favored and loved and being accepted and confident in His presence, it's because God's smiling on us. And sometimes when we experience that, whoa, God's holy and there's a heaviness of His glory in His presence and you just want to go holy, holy, holy. God is like revealing His passion, His intensity, His holiness. We don't realize His face is being shown. And the Scripture teaches us something. The Scripture teaches us that we become like whatever we behold. It's a principle we see throughout the Bible. Whatever you spend time gazing upon, whatever your heart and your affections and your eye gate, your ear gate, whatever your gates are looking upon all the time and giving the most attention and favor and love to is what forms you and shapes you. Have you ever noticed two people that are together a long time in marriage and really love each other start looking like each other? 
they end up taking on some of the characteristics and the attributes of each other, right? They kind of walk a, a similar, and they, they, they do some of the same stuff and say something, and it's, it's weird. You know, sometimes I will look at my wife, this happens to me, and I'll be like, that's something I do. Because you're with somebody for a long time, you're beholding them, and you're being shaped. The same thing happens with God. And, and many times, I know this is overly simplistic. I know some of you in this room have, there's so much baggage and so much pain and so much fear. And you're like, how am I ever going to change? But I want you to know something. If you make the pursuit of your life, I'm a mess, but I'm going to really, with people's help, with the community's help, in prayer, walking with others, I'm going to make getting to know him, being a pursuer of his presence, I'm going to make that the most important thing in my life, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, to be conformed, right? To, to be conformed to that. I want to know him because if we know him like that, all the other stuff starts to take care of itself. I mean, I, I just use my own life real quickly, but when I came to the Lord, I was a mess. I mean, embar it's embarrassing. My wife didn't know what she was getting. By the way, I just want to tell you, none of you know what you're getting or what you got. Some of you are reeling from it right now. You're like, I married that person. You know, she was a babe. He was a babe. They were really neat. Oh, we talked all night. It's wonderful. And you get married, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, my goodness. What did I get myself into? And you know what? They're saying the same thing. Now God has given you that person to help conform you to his image and likeness. But when I first came to Christ, there was so much brokenness. It still is, but it's being healed. And it's being healed because I keep looking. I keep Now listen, I fail and fall all the time, and so do you, right? I mean, along the way, my heart gets pulled to the side, to the left, and to the right. I chase stupid stuff. I waste my time. I waste my life. I spend too much time on my screen, whatever it may be. I, I take times I should have been praying, and I don't pray, and I don't read my Bible, and I do something else stupid that I later on, I'm like, why did I waste my life? I do that kind of stuff to all of it, just like you do. But there are those times when the Lord recaptures my heart. He captivates me, and I find myself going, there is no place like home. And home is your presence. And when I'm there, I'm most at peace. When I'm there, I'm experiencing joy. And I don't just mean goosebumps. I mean a growing knowing, a thing in your bones, deep down inside of your gut that says, I have to have you or I die. That I'm not into going to church and reading the Bible and praying just because I want to be a religious person. I really have to know you, God. And if I don't know you, I'll perish. Because I can't live with me like this anymore. If I continue to be like this, I am going to be in despair. But if I look to you, the wonderful one, the powerful one, the mighty one, the great one, and I behold you, maybe I'll be changed. And that's what changes us. And listen, please, hear my heart. Gosh, sometimes when a person talks passionately like this, Immediately, the voice that comes up in you, I'm not like that. I don't have that. I'm not like that. You know, I, I can't be like Pastor Doug. I don't want you to be like me. You're you. You have a unique journey. You have a unique story. The way you're going to encounter God is going to be different than the way I do. Please, don't compare to the people around you. You have a beautiful, custom-made story by God for you. And he's going to tell his good news through you differently. And it's going to be wonderful and beautiful. But all of us 
can be pursuers of that presence. Because here's the beauty, the presence, the face of God is always pursuing us. He's chasing after us. Your goodness is running after What is the goodness of God? It's not just a, a, an attribute. It is Him. You might as well sing, you're running after me. You're running after me. He's running after you. He's chasing after you. That's why some of you that are here today that have been in the pit, that have come out of the mess, and, and you've just been like, where have I been? What have I been doing? Why have I been so stupid? Why are you here? Because God didn't give up on you. He didn't quit on you when you quit on him. That's the good news. You talk about pursuit. It's not my pursuit of him. I'm just turning around and chasing back because he's been chasing. He loves you. His presence is after you. Oh, I got to finish up. You think about the Bible. What is the Bible really the story of? It's the story of messed up people who met God. That's the bottom line. You want to know what the story of the Bible is? It's messed up people like you and me that met God and their lives were changed. And they came away not only being in awe and wonder of Him, but having a sense of purpose and meaning to their life. They were given a reason to live. You think of Abraham and Moses and Joshua and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Paul and all these various people in the Gospels that encountered the presence of God and they were marked and changed and they were never the same. I want to take you to one. This is where I'm going to end my message today. But I want to take you to the story of a woman caught in the act of adultery. And I want you to look at this beautiful story in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. It says, And they went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. You know, I, I just stop here and say, I love the Bible. I love reading about Jesus. Just look, you know, Jesus wanted to be with the people. He wanted to be with people. He wanted to teach them. The kingdom of heaven was invading them, and he, he wanted them to understand. And so he's sitting with them, and he's teaching them. And then it says, and the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders. It's really sad, isn't it? May we never be like that here. May, may it never be said that the religious leaders of Grace Harvest Church are a bunch of Pharisees and scribes. May it never be said. Angers me, it bothers me when leaders misrepresent the nature and character of Jesus. And they distort to people what he's like. May that never happen here. Lord, please don't let me ever do that. Don't let us ever do that. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery. Think about this for a minute. Use your holy imagination. Here's a woman who they were waiting to catch. Who's the scumbag here? And you notice it never says in the text, and the man. They brought a woman and a man caught in adultery. They just brought the woman. She's caught in the very act of adultery. What, what kind of twisted mind do you have to have to be waiting till a woman engages in that act and then swoop in on the scene? Gotcha! Scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And really their motive here isn't even to condemn the woman, it's to catch Jesus. 
They want to, they want to show that Jesus is going to distort the law. He's going to go against what Moses said. And Jesus, in his masterful way, they say, so what do you say? And this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. But Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Scholars have speculated for 2,000 years what he wrote. Some say he began to write the law, each of the commandments. And as he wrote them and they read what he was reading, they became convicted themselves. I like to think maybe he was doing that, but maybe he actually was getting a word of knowledge and he was writing at each of their specific sins. Well, that Pharisee, yeah, he's been, he's been uh, fraud, defrauding the people. Oh, yeah, that one right there, he's in an adulterous relationship at this very moment. and He's just kind of laying it out, right? And let's continue to read. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Now, a lot of people like to focus on the next part. Go and sin no more. Jesus told her to go and sin no more. Stop. Before you go there and default there, look at what he first says. Neither do I condemn you. Some of you that are sitting here right now, you live under a cloak of constant condemnation because you're a sinner. And you fail over and over again. And you blow it over and over again. I know some of you. I know some of your stories. Half the time I talk to you, I feel like I'm trying to get you to look back at the cross. Yeah, yeah, you did that. It's true. Oh, it's nasty. Yeah, I do nasty stuff too. But there's a cross. There's a Savior. Neither do I condemn you. Listen, if Jesus said it, how many of you know that carries extra authority? So I want to say to you, you're sitting here right now and you're living under that condemnation. I want to say neither does Jesus condemn you. Amen? So when he then says to her, go and sin no more, this is not a command. It's not like, so, so because of that, stop it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you've encountered the embodiment of love, grace, mercy. You know what it is to be forgiven. Don't do it anymore. He's not saying, never again commit an act of sin. We know that's impossible. He's saying, your, your identity is no longer adulterous woman. Your identity is daughter. That's your identity. You're not going to, from this point on, you're going to go out and you're going to find a new power, a new grace, and a new life. Why? Because you've been forgiven, you've been loved, you've received mercy and grace. That isn't who you are anymore. Go and sin no more.
Can you imagine? She didn't go out of there going, gosh, I hope I don't blow it again. He said, go and sin no more. He commanded me. What if I blow it tomorrow? She didn't go out doing that. She left his presence going just like this. Okay. I'm different. She encountered the living God. She encountered his presence face to face, and she was changed. She was marked. She was never the same. You can count on it. Amen? She's forgiven and empowered to go and sin no more. And so that's what God wants to do with us. I'm past my time. So I just, I have more to say, but I'm not going to. I just want to say before we leave here, before we leave here today, some of you that are sitting here today have been horribly marked. You've had stuff like this happen to you. And you're having a hard time moving on in life. And some of us, we look at people who've experienced this and we don't know they've experienced this and we're wondering what the heck is wrong with them. And I just want to tell you, it's not your place. You don't know their story. Leave their story alone. Right? It's not our job to, con- to, to look at them and measure them according to our own measurement. Right? We extend mercy and grace. I'm not saying we don't confront sin. We do. We confront sin here. We talk to people about their stuff. But our answer isn't try harder, be better. You're a terrible human being. Our answer is you need the cross of Jesus. Jesus Christ loves you. You can't beat this on your own. You need to quit trying to beat it all on your own. You need to come to let's, let some other people walk with you. That's our answer. We don't, we don't you know, candy coat it. We don't say it isn't sin. We don't dress it up. As they say, put lipstick on a pig. We don't do that. Right? Doesn't, but what we do is we point people back to the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ and his cross. You've been branded like this? I want to tell you something. There's a mark, a brand, a touch for your life that's more powerful than anything that's ever happened to you. And it's the presence of God known in the face of Jesus Christ. It's the good news. You're forgiven. Somebody died in your place, took your sin, took your death, took your judgment, has risen from the dead, sends his Holy Spirit to you and says, now be my child. Go and sin no more. I'm with you. I'm for you. A new day has begun. It's a new year. It's a new time. You're marked by my presence. Amen? Why don't you stand with me?